The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. And on this show, we'll be turning up the psychological perspective on many life issues. To do this, I want to include you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and call in with questions, comments to today's show at 1-866-472-5788. You know, April is Sexual Violence Awareness Month, so it's fitting that today we have the fourth show in a series on reducing sexual violence. You can hear our previous podcasts. The Power of Male Voices in Reducing Sexual Violence, Consent Stories, Understanding the Language of Sexual Connection, When a Yes is a Yes and a No is a No, and Preventing Sexual Violence on and Off Campus with the Green Dot Program. Today, Dr. Sherry Hamby, noted researcher in the field of violence, invites us to consider the ordinary magic of resilience, attainable even after violence or significant adversity. Dr. Sherry Hamby is the founder and editor of the Journal of the Psychology of Violence. She's the director of the Appalachian Center for Resilience Research, and she's been a professor of psychology researching violence for over 20 years. She has more than 150 articles and books, her most recent book including Battered Women's Protective Strategies, Stronger Than You Think. She's the recipient of numerous honors from national organizations, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Huffington Post, and hundreds of other media outlets. Dr. Sherry Hamby, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me today, Suzanne. Well, let's start. You're inviting our listeners by asking them what's in their resilience portfolio. Dr. Hamby, Tell us what you mean by resilience and what do you mean by a portfolio? Well, resilience is a multifaceted concept. It, it embodies what you were just talking about a moment ago. So this idea that even though 
by the time we have all made it to adulthood, virtually all of us will have experienced some form of adversity, and most of us, the vast majority of us, will have experienced some form of victimization or what in some ways might even be worse, seeing a loved one experience a victimization. And yet, despite that burden of adversity, most of us will still have the the ability and the capacity to still achieve some real true sense of well-being and happiness. By resilience portfolios, we're trying to draw point to the concept that, you know, none of us are, are good at everything, right? We all have different strengths and different weaknesses. So you don't have to be good at everything or to have every psychological strength that we have identified as important. But if you have a few good key strengths across a range of different types of, of positive assets and resources, then you are probably able to cope with most of what life might throw at you and get to that point of well-being and happiness that we'd all Mm. like to achieve. You know, very often when you talk about those traits, we think about kind of the God-given traits. Someone might be intelligent, uh, gifted in art or music, have tremendous physical strength. You know, here's, I've worked with people who I am not, I don't even know how they made it out of their childhoods, but they might have, as I'm saying, they might be unusually intelligent or very, very strong or have tremendous social skills. So they found other mentors, surrogate parents along the way. So as you say, people have different dimensions of strength. But can we build on these? What I mean, what if I don't have those? Well, I think we can absolutely build on those. And, of course, you're right. Some of them are going to be more uh, individual differences, and we're not going to all be able to change everything about ourselves. But, and, you know, as, as a psychologist, you know, of course we believe in the capacity for change. And so... We may not all have the capacity to really excel in any particular skill, but I strongly believe that everybody has the capacity to put together a portfolio of strengths that will help them cope effectively with with adversity. So what, what are the strengths that come to mind, or what are some of the strengths you've helped people develop? So... In the resilience portfolios, we have focused on three particular domains that that cover a range of different strengths that we think are particularly important. Um, As you mentioned, there are lots of different strengths like being, you know, physically strong or fast or things like that. Uh, Creativity is another wonderful strength to have. But for, for terms of dealing with adversity, the research clearly points that there are some strengths that are probably more valuable to develop than others. And so we focus on three. We focus on interpersonal skills, uh, regulatory skills, which by which I mean things like impulse control and emotional regulation, and meaning-making strengths, which is probably the domain that has been most neglected in terms of research with or, or practice with uh, survivors of adversity and violence, but we think might be even the most important of those three. So these other types of strengths are obviously helpful too, but those are the ones that we primarily target. Now, um, I want us to come back and talk about the meaning-making, but can you give us an example of each of these domains, Dr. Hamby? Well, the first one you said was inner resources. 
uh, interpersonal resources. So those would be things like social support, good connections with family, but they're also good uh, individual or more intrapersonal skills, so like good communication skills, good negotiating skills. Uh, Those are the types of things that can both help you get out of tricky situations when you encounter that, and so it might actually minimize your adversity burden because some forms of adversity might be somewhat avoidable. And then uh, if you experience an adversity, those kinds of interpersonal skills will help you get in touch with the people that you need to support you through those difficult times. Okay, so if you're someone who can ask an aunt to help you, if you're someone who can speak to a friend after you've been through an adversity, that's the kind of interpersonal skills perhaps that would be with the first dimension, developing the ability to reach out or to share or to kind of verbalize needs. Um, Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and another one that we think is maybe particularly important is what... Uh, researchers call generativity, which is an old term from Eric Erickson, but what it means is really kind of giving back to the generations that are behind you. Mm-hmm. And we used to think of that as something that only uh, older people might do or people who are of parenting age, because of course being a parent is a sort of the exemplar of generativity. But we now realize that really even adolescents and young adults really value the opportunity to teach people other things or to feel like they're making a contribution. And so people who really sort of think of what they're doing and prioritize doing that also cope with adversity better. I, I have seen that so much in group work after traumatic events, the, the generosity with which someone helps someone else, the altruism, really restores some people's sense of um, their own sense of resilience, their sense of mastery, it reduces certain helplessness. If I can help you talk through a rough spot in a group, um, or I can help a friend, that really helps me. Um, now, when you speak about regulating affect and impulses, what would we mean by that? So classically, what that has meant is avoiding making poor choices in those domains. So uh, with kids, you certainly see it, but also with adolescents and younger adults, so avoiding getting into delinquent behaviors, avoiding acting out for emotional regulation. It has classically kind of meant refer, uh, being able to manage difficult emotions, so managing your anger, managing your sadness and your distress. And that is how we have primarily looked at it so far. But, but another emerging aspect of that that I think is going to be increasingly important as people study it more is this also this idea of being able to sustain positive affect and mm-hmm. being able to you know, not just let things get you down and, and not just get back to neutral, but again, getting back to that truly sort of positive domain. So, in other words, the type of situation where I think I'm having a good day and then someone cuts me off and then um, I can't find a parking space. So, my ability to hold on to the fact that I was in a good mood and not have that mood flip to road rage or um, a kind of pessimistic outlook 
is the kind of thing we would be um, trying to help people work on? Exactly. So that whether the daily hassles are small ones like you mentioned or larger, more significant adversities, that we have the capacity to not let that be the defining feature of the day that you can't find a parking space and that you can still have a good day even though you had trouble parking. Mm, you know, um, you most of us have read lately and use, are using mindfulness or the idea that um, we can let it go. And I, I know we, we see research on uh, special forces um, being able, like when they studied, why are these people resilient when they're constantly in the face of adversity? And I think one of the things they found is if the mission doesn't work, that's it. The mission's over. We move on. We tend as people usually not to move on. We hold on to it. We think about it. So there's a real, I, I wonder if in fact mindfulness is one of the strategies that you would use to help people with developing this holding on to the positive and not falling down the slide into the negativity. Absolutely. We are very enthusiastic about mindfulness and other meditation practices because it does have terrific impact on these types of regulatory processes and and also on some of the meaning-making ones too, so on being able to have some sense of optimism and help you maybe clarify what your priorities are through the process of meditating. And so we definitely think that mindfulness is one of the better things that you can do to help build your resilience portfolios. Now, maybe tell our listeners when we talk about meaning-making What are we actually talking about? So that also refers to a range of different processes. On the one hand, there is traditional religion or spirituality, and that is certainly a central component. Um, I'm from the live in the Bible belt, and so that is the way that a lot of people around here find meaning is through connection with a religious tradition, connection to God, uh, involvement in an organized church. But there are also other ways that people can find meaning, and any sort of process that allows you to develop a sense of purpose, a sense of optimism, a sense of hope, uh, any kind of, well, you mentioned the military, for example. So if you feel like you have a, a clear role in an organization that you value and that the mission which you think is important, I mean, that can also be ways of finding meaning. Um, I've seen it also, certainly with the military, but I've also seen it with spouses or family members of someone who's very ill. And you can look at it and just despair. But the whole idea of, you know, breaking it down to an achievable goal, if the meaning of that day is to give your loved one um, uh, something to laugh about or as comfortable as you can make that person or to bring in music, that is, if the meaning is to give the loved one, by your efforts, a good day, that changes your mood about, the, you know, the illness of that partner. Yes, I think that's another terrific example that 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 those seem like small 
behaviors or small actions, but because they fit into this larger scheme of dedication and commitment to the loved one, it infuses even the, the smallest chore with a sense of meaning. Mm. Now, I know one of the things that you've done um, a lot of research lately on, and um, we're going to take a, a break in a few minutes, but is this whole idea of narrative. Um, and I, I also think narrative, and I, I want us to help our listeners understand all the aspects of this, could be a wonderful thing. I mean, we're talking about in this resilience portfolio, you know, interpersonal skills, regulating mood, making meaning, and narrative is a very interesting piece. What made you start to look at narrative? So, well, there were really a couple of different forces. On the one hand, there was some frustration, uh, as you know, we've talked before about sort of traditional prevention and intervention programs and how they weren't really helping people as much as we would like. Uh, But then also it was something that just really arose out of my own community. We have a narrative program in the schools here that has been going on for more than 25 years and they came to me and asked me to evaluate it and so we did ended up doing a series of interviews and surveys with more than 700 youth and young adults who had participated in the program and talked to them about what it was like and as they reflected on it, what difference had it made to, that had made to them to participate in a, in a really a very short narrative exercise. It was really profound and fits in with this very big literature now about just you know, some people call it the two-minute miracle. It's just remarkable how powerful narrative can be. Hmm. And um, we're we're going to take a brief break. But when you let's just define narrative. So when you say narrative, do you mean talking to someone about what happened? Do you mean writing something? What? what how would you define it? Most of the time, especially in the. <laughs> programs that usually mean writing, although some of them, like the one here in my community, also involves sharing with other people in addition to writing about it. But there are some, but the course narrative can be any kind of storytelling tradition. And so, for example, in trauma-focused CBT, they also encourage other forms of storytelling if people are more comfortable with an oral tradition or even if they would like to express themselves with visual arts or I think in some cases they've even let people do things like uh, design a dance or other kind of mechanism of expressing mm-hmm. With mm. their story. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a brief break Um, And then we're going to come back and look closer at narratives so that our listeners can possibly even begin to use this. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and today we're speaking to Dr. Sherry Hamby about the power of developing and using resiliency strategies, both as interventions and preventions of violence and adversity. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. 
Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're talking with Dr. Sherry Hamby. She's the author of Battered Women's Protective Strategies, Stronger Than You Think. She's an expert in the area of violence. And her new research turns to resilience. And Sherry and I were just talking about a very fascinating research project that she became involved with that involves the use of the narrative. And I guess I want to preface this by saying, you know, many, many people will talk about writing in a diary, logging, We've seen research that says write about good things, write about bad things. Uh, people are at times a bit confused. So I think that this, the, what you're going to hear now in terms of this research is very, very fascinating in terms of freeing us up with a choice of what we write. Um, Dr. Hamby, can you tell us about how this study unfolded and what exactly was, was the study uh, about? How did it work? So, uh, as I said, in our community, we have had a program for many years called the Laws of Life Essay, and in that, it does vary from some of these other narrative programs. So, in a lot of the narrative research that's been done, they do tell people specifically to write about the worst thing that's ever happened to them, or a couple of times they've tried asking people to write about the best thing that's ever happened to them, and those have generally been found to be helpful. But what I think was interesting and unique about this program is that they asked them instead to focus on their values. And so I, I just have a couple of the, some of the prompts, the writing prompts that they give. So, for example, you might start your essay with something like, 
I am thankful for all the experiences in my life. However, what shaped me into who I am today was, and then fill in what that would mean to you, or something like, I will never forget the lesson that person taught me that day. And it did turn out that most of the people wrote about very personal experiences and that the most common choice was to write about some sort of adversity or difficult experience. Uh, Some people are surprised to learn that even by the time of high school that, that most children have already experienced at least one very difficult adversity or traumatic event, uh, victimization or exposure to some kind of natural disaster or something like that. And the ones that chose to road on a more difficult event actually got more out of the, the process and the participation in the program than the other than the other students did. Yeah, I thought you. And when you look closely at your your results, so here we have a situation where they could write, they could write about um, anything. They were just told what's an important experience that shaped your life, and forty four percent write on adversity, thirty seven on personal situations, and only eighteen percent on famous people who might have inspired them. And I thought the other interesting thing was. of the 700 children you looked at reported they got a benefit from this. And and when we think about how simple it was, I mean, what you describe is it took a few classroom times, and um, then they presented in class, but they, and then the other interesting thing is they, they didn't have to share with others, but those that got the most benefit actually shared their essay with others. Is that right? That's right. And in fact, the, the, the more people they shared with, the more benefit they got out of it. So sharing with three people was better than sharing with two people, and sharing with four people was better than three people. And we were quite surprised at the strength of that effect because in many of the traditional narrative programs that are out there, that's not a component at all. Uh, but, of course, in most psychotherapy situations that would be an an inherent part of the process is to talk something over with your therapist and it did just reinforce the incredible value of of being able to be with somebody else and go you know and when you're discussing it and processing it and trying to reframe it in your mind and what you're going to take away from it mm-hmm. um what's what's interesting to me from what you think of neuropsychology, and I want to hear what you think. What we often say in trauma work is that moving from the experience of a traumatic event, which is registered right brain, which is emotions, senses, it's, it's a representation, to actually putting words to it, in this case writing it, allows you to symbolize it allows you to integrate it and I've often said to people talking to me about a trauma that when they say well it it made me feel good to talk about it to put words in it when I spoke to you I say well you didn't just tell me the story you told you the story again I think that um, when people write something and read it or they share it there's something about that process that changes even our neurochemistry about experiencing that traumatic event. 
Yes, I think it works something like an exposure in that it really helps them process it and get some emotional distance from it. It can give them some perspective. And for many people, I think one of the things that's important is that while, of course, bad things are still bad things, but sometimes people still learn something even from bad or difficult experiences. And one of the effects of narrative, is, I think, is to make that clearer for the writer. So if they realize that they had more inner strength than they thought they had, if it they led them to clarify what their true priorities were, it often can increase your empathy for others who have gone through difficulties. And so it often gives people a chance to reframe it and change their perspective on it in a way that can let them walk away with at least something that they, that they learn from the experience that they feel can help them going forward. And that can be a very powerful experience for them. What to me was very telling about your study, and I'm inviting the listeners to consider that we're people say we're storytelling animals. You know, um, there's a book on that, and that we remember stories better from the Bible on. We can, yeah, we seem to tell our stories. So here we have 700 kids who do not have to talk about adversity, yet they're drawn to do that. So it's such an interesting, you wonder about it being an interesting urge to have somebody here, even yourself, somehow make meaning of an unthinkable event that might have happened. Um, Some people cannot write, but they would share it. Some people can't share it, but they would write it. Now, I know you said future research, you're going to see if there's a difference with that, um, but it seems to me it's a very natural inclination to want to put words to something that seems beyond what you can even think about putting words to. Yes, I think that it's it's really is a powerful way of processing things and to help people move on. And you mentioned the neurochemistry of it, and so there's been. Uh, quite a lot of studies that have looked at, for example, the immune system benefits and people who have processed these bad events and written even very short narratives about them have stronger antibodies, they have improved lymphocytes, and they, uh, in one of the very first studies, they actually, of college students, they had fewer visits to the student health center after wow. just literally 60 minutes of writing compared on something traumatic versus 60 minutes compared to just writing about boring old study skills. And at the end of the semester, the kids who had written about uh, something traumatic and had processed that actually went to the doctor less often than the group that had written about study skills. That's really interesting. And how powerful is that? Um, So how do you think it affects the meaning making we were talking before and the self-regulating? Do you think writing about what happened to us Um, and maybe for some people telling, but we're saying writing in this case, how do you think it affects self-regulation or the meaning-making that we were talking about? Uh, Yes, those are the two domains that are most impacted by narrative, and I think it helps in terms of the emotional regulation. I think it makes 
it a little less scary. I don't know if you've ever really gone in your mind and just been very upset about something, and then once you finally sat down and told somebody about it, it just suddenly didn't seem as big and bad as it was when you were still just sort of you know, circling in your own head about it. And so I definitely think it helps with the emotional regulation and processing and reflecting on those emotions, increasing emotional awareness, which is another great regulatory strength, just to even know what all emotions you're feeling about something. And in terms of the meaning-making, I think it really helps people clarify what their priorities were and connect, you know, you just... I mean, for people who've been through a traumatic event, I think one of the key goals is to learn how to acknowledge that that happened to you and that, you know, not try to deny that that was part of your life or your reality, but also not let it become the defining feature of yourself and just reframe in a more positive post-traumatic growth-oriented way of, well, you know, that was a tough thing to go through, but you know, but now I, you know, realize what it's like for other people who've been through that or whatever it is that you take away from it. And so to to kind of put it in a larger framework of you sort of on this developmental path to being the, the best person that you can be. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things, um, and I wondered about if this was true of the students in terms of telling other people or wanting other people to read their story, that I've seen in groups after trauma, Sometimes someone is telling their story and someone else will say, that's my story, same thing happened to me. And I've always thought of it in terms of this a collaborative storytelling even, that it often gives people the words, the references, the symbols. They have the feeling, but they don't quite have the symbols. And to hear someone else tell their story actually is very, very helpful for them in making sense of their own story. So it's interesting to me that the children who actually share their story the most, you said, did the best in terms of post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, I think that sometimes it just also helps to sort of organize it. And like you said, we're storytelling animals. And so the, the narrative forces people to try to create a, a beginning and a middle and an end. And, and the end is almost always this the aftermath and that's the part where the post-traumatic growth usually comes out in these stories and I think in that that's probably the same benefit they get from hearing about it from somebody else is that it just starts to take on the the familiar narrative arc that we all know from any movie or book that we've ever mm-hmm. read and trying to make our lives kind of fit that narrative framework as a, as a handle on understanding well, there's got to be a reason, Sherry, that reality shows where people are talking about their horrific events, albeit a little bit dramatic, dramatically um, escalated for the show, pull so many people into the audience to watch it. And that is, you do wonder if people are wondering, did it happen to someone else? Can I relate to that? So, you know, the whole idea of narrating seems to be one we're drawn to and maybe really can be used, certainly, um, in terms of enhancing resilience. Now, this makes me think, and I wanted you to share, if you would, your work with battered women. It's so interesting you say they're stronger than you think, and your work with them with respect to the inventory you develop, because there you were asking them 
I guess to think about themselves, I sort of write about themselves. Um, I wondered because I think it's related. Could you speak a little bit about the vigor? Sure. So the the vigor is a safety plan that I developed. When it stemmed from the same sort of frustration of just everybody having this very negative mindset when they worked with battered women and only ever asking them about the trauma and the, the bad things that were going on. But if you really spend time with, with those women, you know, so many of them are so strong and determined and they're, they have so much perseverance and you know, it's so hard to get the, the kind of help and support that you need. And many of them are just really show remarkable grit, I think. And, and so the vigor is, instead of this standard safety plans that are out there, which most of them are these one-size-fits-all checklists, it's just a list of things that may or may not be a, applicable to you. And so instead, with the vigor, it is also a narrative approach. It lets people write about their their risk and the things that are on their mind. It lets them define those things instead of it being forced on them that they have to be the most upset about the violence. Sometimes they're not the most upset about the violence. Sometimes they're more concerned about what's going to happen with the custody of their kids or things like that. Uh, but it also is really the, the first tool of any kind for working with victims of domestic violence that has an entire section developed devoted to strengths and that is the piece that over and over again these women have told me that they like the best and many of them have told me that they have never been asked about any strengths or assets that they might bring to the table at all but of course as a in treatment planning as a clinician you'll know that it makes sense to build on what they've already got instead of just assume that you're starting from scratch with everybody and it has really changed the mindset of how you approach the 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 incredibly complicated problems that many of these women are facing by having a more collaborative and, and hopeful approach to working together with them. So if, if our listeners, um, this, the vigor is available online and I'm going to ask you to give the way that people can access this. So people are asked, um, you correct me if I'm wrong. Well, what goals do you have? And literally it's set up so that they can choose their goals. My goal in the next six months is to get my children and myself to live somewhere else. What options do you have? It really just invites people to start thinking outside the box. Uh, what risks are you going to face if you do try to, you know, actualize the options? What strengths are you going to draw upon? So, I mean, it's, I mean, this is really something that is such a gift, I think, um, Sherry, because, I think people can use it, whether they're victims of domestic violence or not, just in terms of where they are in their life, in terms of thinking, writing about the goal. Once you think and write about goals, options, risks, strengths, you're in a different place about a problem. Uh, yes, well, thank you. I, I, I agree that you could really use it for a lot of other adversities, too, just as easily and it has been really well received. People are using it in a lot of different places. It's become uh, the recommended safety plan in uh, Connecticut and a number of other um, states and shelters. Uh, and it has since the recently been translated into 
uh, several languages, so it's now available in, in Spanish and in Catalan and in French as well as in English. So we are, you know, people are definitely taking it up and using it. And one of the important points to me was to make sure that it was available to, for free to people because I know that sometimes resources are a big issue for people who are experiencing domestic violence or other adversities. And so they, anybody can go and download it for free at the website, thevigor.org. So that's T H E. V-I-G-O-R dot org, or also if you just Google my name, I think you will get to the websites pretty pretty quickly. So if they Google, um, you know, Dr. Sherry Hamby, they will see a link somewhere along the line for the bigger, V-I-G-O-R. Yes. Okay, and I think it's a, it's really a gift. What was something... Um, that surprised you? Well, first of all, you moved from violence to a focus on resilience. In your shift to resilience, what has surprised you as you've worked with this portfolio of resilience idea? We talked today about interpersonal skills, making meaning, regulating mood and feeling, and now narrating as a tool. What surprised you the most? I think that, well, I could probably mention two things. I think one, uh, just how incredibly powerful narrative is. I mean, to tell you the truth, I was frankly kind of skeptical when I first started looking into this that spending an hour or so um, writing something down would have any kind of long-lasting psychological impact. But there has just been dozens of studies by many different research teams and uh, you know, I have really, I, I now really, I tell people now that if you are working with someone and you only have the chance to do one thing with them, that I would really recommend a narrative as the most powerful intervention that you can do with, with somebody. Um, and the other thing I think that has surprised me, because uh, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show, that meaning-making is something that has really been neglected in psychology and we tend, and not, there are subdisciplines of psychology that do focus on the psychology of religion and things like that. But within the working with, with victims and with people who have experienced adversity, people don't talk very much about religion and spirituality or purpose or optimism or other elements of meaning making. And so far, what we have seen is that seems to be the biggest piece. Um, Last week, for example, I was in South Africa, and you know, there. I think that's one way you can really see the struggles of what many of those young people in the townships there are going through, because they don't think that they're going to live past 25 or 30 years old, and so mm. they don't have any sense of hope. They don't have any reason for optimism, and as a consequence, they, they make choices as, and not really care about the consequences of those choices and make some sometimes some very bad choices along those lines, and not just regarding violence, but even regarding things like HIV risk and things like that. And um, so one thing we definitely found was that meaning-making and also to some extent interpersonal relationships that those really especially helped bolster the self-regulation uh, as far as putting a whole portfolio package together. So and far from it being something that's 
been kind of neglected. I think it really should be front and center in all of this work. Mm. So in Africa with those young people, did you invite the writing of narratives? Did you support the spirituality piece? What exactly did you do? Uh, I was just there as a visitor, so I did oh, not okay. get a chance to run a program with them. But, uh, but you know, I was just really struck by those stories. And, and I think that a lot of the programs that we still traditionally run miss that element of offering them some sort of path to meaning-making or some sort of path to committing to some kind of value that will help see them through these tough times and um, not just there but also in the states as well and mm-hmm. too many of the programs we have are just really kind of not much more than finger wagging about red flags and warning signs and how to stay out of trouble and instead of really giving people a reason to to change their lives. Okay, well, we're, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Hamby, for, for opening up the, the window in considering the ability to use resilience, the narrative, some of the other points we made, even in the face of violence, past adversity. I think it was a gift. I thank you for your contribution today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Suzanne. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. I want to thank my listeners. You can hear this and any prior show as a podcast by this evening on my host site, my website, on many different podcast sites, including you're on your iPhone, on iTunes, on Psych Up Live. Um, next week, we listen in. We're going to have doctors Judith and Bob Wright. They're going to be talking about the heart of the fight, a couple's guide to 15 common fights what that means, and how it can bring you closer. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. And until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.